It is painful to crinkle a robe for the first time. Thank you. I was finding myself nervous because I'm wearing your robe. And when I put it on my head to um, do what we always do when we put our robe on our heads, which is to vow to wear the robe of the Tathagata for awakening for all beings, it was a slightly more serious. It is, it's deeply humbling. I feel like I'm wrapped in the Sangha's vow to each other. I have to talk about it because it's kind of an elephant in the room. Um, and since Samatha Padra's effort is represented by an elephant, it really is an elephant in the room. Kiku-san, arigatou gozaimasu. All of you, thank you. I understand there's the stitches of what, 80 people? For those of you who don't know who are new, the Sangha just finished this, sewing this entire robe by hand. It's a teaching robe. You get two robes when you're Dharma transmitted. One is your kind of everyday houseware robe, <laughs> which has seven panels. And then the teaching robe has nine panels and is lined. So it has like the inside. It's a different color. And one of the customs is that the Sangha invites a person to teach by sewing a teaching robe. So again, thank you. I want to talk a little bit about collective vow. This robe gave birth to a talk. Collective vow and what we're doing coming here to sit Zazen together. We've been talking about karma. This book isn't used very much, so <laughs> it doesn't want to stay open. Um, collective karma, and uh, how we work with it. And the interesting thing about karma is, I mean, sometimes in the United States, it's talked about as we're working with our in karma in an individual way. We're sitting down zazen, doing that. But in the history of Buddhism, the location of working with karma is not only oneself, but the sangha. The Sangha is always a part of it. There were many people around the Buddha at the time who were practicing moksha practices or practices of liberation. But the Buddha assembled a Sangha. And the Buddha put together, and the Buddha understood the necessity of vow in holding the harm of the world. And so even when he died and they were looking for a successor, 
his response was no successor. The Sangha is the successor. So that is our way, is to do this in community. Our way is to foreground community. And everybody is located in different roles in that community, really just as learning moments. So we come here and we sit down together, and it's not so easy. We're bringing, if you're like me, I work in the world. I'm bringing city mind, work mind, subway mind, all these people mind to this seat. And we're only two sits in. We're not that far in. So there's probably still some bubbling. So we sit down and together, and in that sitting down, we suspend for a moment the activity of the way we respond to that bubbling mind. We do lots of things to suspend. We do ritual, we chant, we wear robes, we do all of these things are ways to remind us to stop. Remember our vows. Vow is a big one. Zazen is a physical vow. And so this bubbles up in its many uncomfortable ways. And sometimes happily. And we grab one and throw out the other. But this mind, uh, you know, sometimes we want to grab onto the, the good stuff and throw out the stuff that doesn't feel good. And then we cycle and cycle and cycle and cycle with that for a while. Do we stop? But there is this mind, you know, what do we do when we sit down and suddenly all of this um, karma, I realize I don't have a clock, all of this karma starts coming up. You do? Okay, you'll just tell me. Okay. All this karma starts coming up. And we experience it as dukkha, because our relationship to our karma is usually not that clean. We grab onto the parts of it we like, and we push away the parts we don't. And we judge it, and we talk to ourselves about the kind of person we should be, and the kind of person we're not, and what zazen should look like, and what it shouldn't. All of this is just dukkha responses to karma. Zazen gives us the opportunity for our conditioning to show itself in this really clear way. Now, at that moment, thank you, that moment, what do we do? Do we kind of get into the morass mess of our making it just right? Or do we step back? and just see. Just let the mind witness. Fortunately, Dogen gives us some ways to think about this. Not just ways to think about it, but ways to practice. So in the, in the Tenzo Kyokan, you've heard this teaching before, but for me, it's limitless. The Tenzo Kyokan, by the way, which is the, which is the, the um, 
the instructions to the head cook, as many of you know, is inside this bigger book that's the Dogen's Pure Standards for the Zen community. The Tenzo Kyokan is just the biggest chapter. He had a lot to say about that particular role, but all the roles are in here, work leaders in here, everybody. If you, this is a great book to read. Most people don't think so, they find it a little dry, but I think it's great. <laughs> um, but he talks about three kinds of mind. And we often say three kinds of mind the Tenzo brings to work, but actually, at the moment he's talking about this in the Tenzo Kyokan, he says, on all occasions that all temple administrators and all people in all roles bring. So he's talking about service at this point, what it is to serve. And oftentimes we come here, especially in the American context, and we don't think of the service role. We think, I need to sit zazen, that's where it's at. And we don't think about the service roles being a part of what it is to be liberated. We don't necessarily go there right away, but that is not the history of Zen. In fact, if you talk to people who practice Chan, which is Zen in China, oftentimes they're not allowed to sit for years. Because generosity practice is the first thing you do. Dana is the first paramita. And so you're in service roles for years before you're able to actually come in as Zendo and sit down. Here we jump right into it. But to understand that in the tradition, the taking up of the roles and the minds we bring to the roles in the act of service is the training in generosity. And the training in generosity, the training in dana mind, is not just to, only to make you a kinder person, although that's a pretty good goal. But um, it's also to open up the mind that can experience liberation. So when I have a limited mind, I'm not generous. When I'm not generous, I have a limited mind. They just right there next to each other. And what I'm feeling, when I'm acting from generosity, usually I have a, a I don't feel separation in my mind in the same way. And if separation in my mind is really in front, I usually am, don't have a lot of capacity for generosity. So this, um, Dogen's talking to us at this moment about what it is to be in, and he's talking to senior people at this point, so it's not like generosity, we get that out of the way. I am constantly seeing how I am not generous. And, um, and then what do I do with that karma? Do I get mad at myself? Do I forgive myself? So, he gives us three minds. The first one he talks about is usually translated as joyful mind. So here's the sentence he, said, he, he writes. What I call, he says what I mean. He, he's very kind to us. He tells us what he means. What I call joyful mind is the happy heart. You must reflect that if you were born in heaven, you would cling to ceaseless bliss and not give rise to way-seeking mind. This would not be conducive to practice. What's more, how could you prepare food to offer to the three jewels? Among the 10,000 dharmas, 
the most honored of the three jewels, the most excellent of the three jewels. Neither the Lord of heaven or a wheel-turning king can compare to them. So what's he saying? So it's interesting because he's saying there, there are two things. One is, so what, well, let's say, why does he suddenly go from joyful mind to this, if, for those of you who aren't familiar with Buddhist cosmology, there's a, there's a realm of the, there's the God realm. And the problem with the God realm is that it's really easy. Everything kind of comes to you and you don't practice. And the gods are also suffering from dukkha, but they'll never pay attention to it. And, um, and he's saying, have a joyful mind if you were in the God realm. So what's he referring to directly? This really helps in Zazen and in dealing with our karma. Joyful mind, or the encouragement to joyful mind, is the recognition that the difficulty of the path is the path. That the very things that are arising that are painful and miserable and so on, that actually is how we wake up. It is not a thing to get over, although it may end at some point, but that's kind of a nice aside. But it is the path through the difficulty that arises in the mind and seeing it clearly that allows us to wake up. So then Dogen's asking us, which I find this difficult, Dogen is asking us to then be joyful. Actually be joyful that the dukkha is arising. That when we sit down and all this stuff starts coming up, and we're like, I am out of here. This is miserable, whatever it is. Or we're in, a, or we're in our roles, and somebody responds to us in a way that's miserable. We don't feel good. They're not very kind to us. There it is. Again, I find this hard to do. Now, this isn't, this isn't the um, just be a doormat, you know, because we're not being kind to another person if we're not mirroring violence. The next mind will help us with that. But, um, but it is to say, the mind that wants to shove away the difficult karmic arisings as if we haven't figured it out yet, or this is something not to be joyful about, or we need to get somewhere else, we are confused at that moment. That's what Dogen, I think, is trying to say to us. That it's at that moment that we say, isn't this great? This is happening. Now I get to see it. I couldn't see it before. Something is happening. My body and mind and the universe and the world is trusting itself enough. There's enough structural integrity here that now I get to see it. But then he goes on to talk about two more minds. No, and he, he then goes on, actually, with the, with the joyful mind. He goes on to talk about, and then you wouldn't be able to do these great things, like um, offer, make offerings to the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. If you were living in the God realm and everything is good and you weren't called to practice and things weren't arising, then you wouldn't have the opportunity to make all these wonderful offerings to the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. You wouldn't even think to do it. And if you wouldn't think to do it, then you wouldn't be a part of the community that is taking responsibility for the karma of the world. You'd just be hanging out somewhere. 
And so he's saying what a blessing to be a part of the community is taking responsibility for the karma of the world. And that means sitting with it, walking with it, serving with it, being Eno with it, being Tenzo with it. Then he goes on to nurturing mind. This is sometimes called grandmotherly mind. As for what is called nurturing mind, it is the mind of mothers and fathers. I understand how complex that claim is, but let's just go with it. Um, it is the mind of mothers and fathers. For example, it is considering the three treasures as a mother and father. Think of their only child. It is considering the three treasures as a mother and father. Think of their only child. It's an awkward sentence. Even impoverished, destitute people firmly love and raise an only child. What kind of determination is this? Now, if you remember probably, it reminds me right away of the line in the Metasutta, even at the risk of her life. Watches over and protects her only child, so with a boundless mind, should we cherish all living things? This um, bringing nurturing to the world. Now, let's remember, this is a non, this is a mind not of separation, ultimately. We're acting from separation, but ultimately, which means the nurturing goes always. The joy goes always, all directions. So if we get caught in this joyful mind, I'm not joyful enough, I should be more joyful, which when my karma comes up, there is this nurturing mind where we nurture that one. grandmotherly mind. Sometimes it's translated as just kind mind. And mm, I think there's something to, I love grandmotherly mind because if all goes well, the position of a grandmother is somebody who has lived a life where their kindness is not lacking in wisdom. where you want nothing bad to happen to your grandchild, and yet you realize that some pain is necessary. And you're not going to be able to make that all just right. And that is a part of what it is to mature as a human being. So that grandmotherly mind that is a nurturing mind is not what Trungpa often calls an idiot compassion mind. It just thinks we need to alleviate everything that happens. Because that kind of nurturing mind, we wobble in our seat. We lose our ability to be upright. We over-respond. We don't let life be life. So this, this um, middle way between over-responding and ignoring that is the nature of nurturing, because the aim of nurturing is not so that I feel nurturing. It's so that someone is actually nurtured. And so if I get caught up in my feeling of nurturing, I'll likely over-nurture. If I get caught up in my feeling of joy, I'll likely ignore suffering. The joy is a sympathetic joy. It goes back, in fact, these three minds cover the same ground as the Brahma Viharas in many ways. 
but um, it's the sympathetic joy of, I, I want, it's not about my doing something so that my mind feels joyful, although that's nice, but it's that there's joy, that you have joy, that there's joy in your life, that joy is being brought. When joy is there for you, I'm joyful. It doesn't make sense. Nothing else makes sense. It makes no sense that when somebody else is joyful, I'm not going to be. I know this arises for all of us, but if we really sit down for a second, why? Why wouldn't the joy of everyone bring us joy? But even if they're joyful about things that I think are not particularly good, I'm happy for their joy. I just don't agree with the cause. So there's this joyful mind, and there's this nurturing mind, and then, not finished. So think about, I mean, feel into what it is for our karma to arise in Zazen. And when are we joyful about it, and when are we not? And just a note, not to beat ourselves up, but just a note. And when it comes up and we're not nurturing, we want it gone. We want it better. We're not caring for it as a grandchild. We're not helping it walk. We're directing it to be more moral in the world. Sometimes all of our, um, all our painful karma needs is just a little direction. Not so much destruction. So then, Dogen goes on. I hope this is helpful. Um, Dogen goes on to talk about magnanimous mind. This is sometimes called big mind. Magnanimous mind. You'll see these three out there, although out there they're joyful mind, kind mind, and big mind. You'll see them on the kitchen altar. I think they're on the kitchen altar. Magnanimous mind, the mind of... As for what is called magnanimous mind, this mind is like the great mountains or like the great ocean. It is not biased or contentious. Carrying half a pound, do not take it lightly. Lifting 40 pounds should not seem heavy. Now this is fantastic. Carrying half a pound, we should not take it lightly. Carrying 40 pounds, we should not treat it as heavy or as a burden. How often when something is easy do I not give it its proper honoring? Probably 50 times a day. And how often do I complain to myself about the heavy load? Although drawn by the voices of spring, do not wander over spring meadows Viewing the fall colors, do not allow your heart to fall. The four seasons cooperate in a single scene. Regard light and heavy with a single eye. On this single occasion, you must write the word great. You must know the word great. You must learn the word great. To have the mind of um, equanimity. It's one aspect to it, but also the mind that isn't my mind. One of the ways this is clarified for me in terms of my experience is that 
I experience joyful mind as sangha mind or as community mind. I experience grandmotherly mind as ancestral mind, as, the, as life taking care of me and ancestral life taking care of me. It's many other things too, but there's a human aspect to it. And I experience great mind as mother earth mind. It's not my mind. It's all of life arising as me. And that's Mother Earth's mind. That's not my mind. That's the whole, whatever I think my mind is, it's just a distraction. Letting all of life arise as me, that's when I'm not distracted. If I think I'm doing, I'm lost. If I know the whole of life is doing as me, then I'm clear. And this flickers in a moment, back and forth in a moment. So balancing these three minds, this mind that is joyful, this mind that is nurturing, this mind that is so expansive, it doesn't become flustered by the details. What's arising is arising, and there it is, and it's a part of the whole. Darlene Cohen used to talk about this with her own pain. She had severe rheumatoid arthritis and could barely move at times, and she was in constant pain. And for her, magnanimous mind was the mind of um, liberation, because once she realized that the mind doesn't need to narrow onto the pain, but you can feel everything that isn't the pain and still honor the pain, then there's freedom. It doesn't mean ignore the pain. It doesn't mean repress it. It doesn't mean any of that. It means including everything. Including everything that is. So when we're sitting on the seat and our mind is just caught, it's just cycling, can we fall back into the experience that is right now and include everything? The person next to us, both people next to us, the whole of the room, the taste of the silence of people sitting together that is through our bones, the whole of the world. Can that all be there too? Not to turn away from the arising of what's happening, simply to include it all. That mind can responsibly care for the arising of karma. That mind doesn't get lost. That mind is free to be joyful, nurturing, with pain. But the mind that <clears throat> tightens up, that one gets lost pretty fast. It starts arguing its way out of the current situation. So big mind allows us to fall back and fall back into it and be reminded of our true being, of who we are. When we're not buying into separation, and we need all of these. We need joy and nurturing and limitlessness 
to respect and honor ourselves, to respect and honor each other, to respect and honor karma, to respect and honor the healing of karma. That's why we have to do this together, because these minds arise in mutual support. When I am in this room with all of you, these minds become available in ways. When I am in silence with all of you, these minds become available in ways that I might see, might not see as clearly other times. And then eventually what happens is we do this enough and they become clear at other times. They become clear walking down the street. They become clear on the subway. They become clear in the minds that we bring in here when we sit down. And there begins to be more of a seamlessness between the minds we feel here and the minds we feel out there, which isn't out there at all. So I would say that what Dogen is offering us in joyful mind and nurturing mind and magnanimous mind is the mind that allows karma to be seen, felt, processed, healed. He's pointing us to that mind. He's pointing us to the mind that whatever we're doing at any time, if this is what's there, we can be free. We can be, and free, I think this gets lost. Free sometimes simply means free to heal. And free to heal doesn't necessarily feel good, usually doesn't, but that doesn't mean it's any less free. So, and then suddenly something happens and jubilance arises and joy arises and happiness arises and then we go, ah, I'm done, I'm gonna stay there. <laughs> um, you all know that won't work. <laughs> so this is this first day talk is just to encourage you to Get in there and stick with it. And you know what comes. For those of you who have done this before, you know what, well, actually, you have no idea what's coming. But you have enough experience, nobody knows what's coming. You know, what, anytime I think I know what a sashin's gonna be, I have no clue what a sashin's gonna be. It's funny to even think that I know what's going to happen. So I kind of have stopped. Um, but you, you have a sense of the arc, you have a sense of, that you can make it, that this isn't the end of all things, sitting five days in silence. In fact, it's often the beginning of many things. And so, note, when am I constricted? When am I judging? When am I not nurturing myself? When am I not worthy of love? and care at this moment because I'm not good enough. When is the, I'm, I think in comparative minds the killer, the person next to me is doing this somehow better 
everybody in this place is still but me. Nobody, that's not true. Anytime you think that, that's not true. It's <laughs> <laughs> just never true. The apparent outside and the reality of the inside are two very different things. Everybody is living through the fire. Everybody in this room is living through the fire. So, please care for yourselves. Please care for each other. To the best that you can, trust stillness. Just trust it, even when every single thing in your body wants to explode. It is completely trustworthy. May our intentions equally... Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.